Hi, my name is Phoebe Gardner, and I beat the often path by transforming food waste into protein and fertilizer with flies. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On the show, we celebrate unique and inspiring success stories to help us re-envision our lives and careers and missions in a new light. And boy, do we have a great win-win-win, something that's good for you, for your bank account, for the planet. I've got Phoebe Gardner in the house. She's the co-founder and CEO of Bardi. And what do they do? Well, have you heard of composting? It's a neat idea to take food waste that would otherwise generate methane gas in landfills and repurpose it for fertilizer. Well, Bardi has taken that process one step further. This episode is not NSFW, but it is BSFL, Black Soldier Fly Larva, <laughs> because her company uses these unique larvae to turn food waste into a usable product in just seven days. And if you've ever composted, you know it takes way longer than that, while actually being carbon positive and basically zero waste. Honestly, it's a remarkable solution to a huge problem, and her team has raised millions in funding so far. So I'm not going to oversell it here because I want her to tell you the idea in her own words. Here's Phoebe Gardner of Bardi. Well, welcome to the show, Phoebe. Very few people in the world can say that they've done what you have done. It's a pretty captivating intro. Um, we had discussed before we began that we weren't going to talk much about any of the boring stuff, like how you raised funding. So I promise I'll stick to the script here. We'll only talk about the funny and fun stuff. All anecdotes all the time. That's the name of the show. But welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Ross. I'm super excited to join. Well, I'm super excited to hear your story because it tax it ticks a lot of boxes for me. First of all, it's a very interesting concept. Second of all, it's benefiting the world at large. And third of all, you've come a pretty far away in a relatively short amount of time with this concept. And it's just so outside the box that I'd love to hear how you came up with it and how you got started in this. Yeah, I mean, it's been just a bit over two years now and at the moment, I'm sitting in our fully operational factory. It operates 24-7 and processes 30 tons of food waste or sort of 10 to 30 tons every single day into a feed for insects that they then eat, devour in a week, and we turn the insects into a protein and all the manure they produce while they're eating into an organic fertilizer for crops. And it took us... I mean, a relatively short time to get here, but a lot of uh, like ups and downs along the way. We started in our living room, me and my partner, who's my co-founder as well now, Alex Arnold. And Alex really brought the concept of how to use uh, insect effectively to process something or even to work with insects in the first place because he's a geneticist and every genetics lab is already working with house flies, Drosophila, um, so it made it not such a large jump for him isn't, to think about using other flies. Isn't there another one as well, Drosophila melanogaster? Isn't that the fruit fly or something like that? That's the one thing I remember from sixth grade biology. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything mean, else. I think, unfortunately, we'd have to ask Alex. <laughs> the fly that we work with, though, is called Hemetia elucens. So Okay. It's, it's a really interesting fly originally from Florida, and it's, its whole thing is that it actually looks like a wasp. It looks like a wasp. Yeah, that, that's reflected in your branding and your logo. It's a simplified version, right? Yeah, yeah. The graphic um, that we use for body 
really does is a simplified version of exactly what the fly looks like. We even have this kind of squiggle pattern on our website that we got from what it looks like to look at the fly's eye under a microscope. Cool. Um, it's actually the reality of what a fly's eye looks like is way cooler than anything we've ever done on the branding front. But um, yeah, they're a really interesting fly. They look like a wasp to scare off other insect predators um, because they're actually not very good at flying. So if something tried to attack them, they probably couldn't um, fly away. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's this interesting thing because we talked about the problem. We know the problem. There are many and they're often very simple. One of the big problems is food waste in general. We got cut off earlier, but the statistic you threw out was 30 percent of food goes to waste. I've heard higher on this show. I've heard guests and that might be an America thing. I've heard 40 percent. I've heard even as high as 50 percent sometimes. But either way, it's a lot of percent of our food that goes to waste. And what has blown my mind so far is the variety of different ways that people have come up with to solve that. Because a problem like food waste has many different angles of attack. And you have a different angle of attack that I haven't seen or heard before. And I find that very fascinating. So how did you end up approaching this problem with that mechanism? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny story how we got here. But food waste is such an enormous problem. And, and we've been made more and more aware of it over the last few years in Australia, at least there's been big TV shows about it. And more generally, there's been more statistics available about the impact of food waste, not just that food goes to waste, but how that contributes to climate change when that food waste breaks down into methane gas and contributes roughly 8% of human caused greenhouse gas emissions. So it's definitely become more and more front of mind. I think at Body, we still believe the most obvious solution is to reduce food waste in the first place. Like if we're making food, let's find ways not to waste it. But what we have learned as we've grown is that some food waste is just totally unavoidable. I would say there's funny days here at the factory where we receive things like a truckload of dim sim wrappings. Do you guys have dim sims? But <laughs> It's the, the bit of pastry that's um, cut, leaves other little scraps around it in the food manufacturing process. Oh, and, of course. Yeah. And, and so there's sometimes that gets reused, but if something happens um, in the food production process where it takes a bit longer, sometimes that dough um, is no longer safe to put back into production. So it ends up um, now, at, instead of going to landfill at sites, like ours. And so we really thought we could meaningfully tackle that section of food waste that's unavoidable and prevent it turning into greenhouse gas emissions. And to do that, we imagined that nature already has solutions for this type of waste. And that's where this tropical fly comes in. Its original purpose was to clean up the waste that falls on a rainforest floor. So when fruit falls into the ground, how does it actually turn back into nutrients for the forest or into a fertilizer for that fruit tree? It happens through this insect eating it, processing it, leaving manure behind that's nutrient rich for the plants. Um, and so that was our starting point as a concept to start building mega processing ability where you 
get insects and process whole cities' food waste at once back into like usable nutrients for either food production, like insect protein for food production, or using their manure as a fertilizer, just like what's already happening in a rainforest. Do you want to know how it doesn't happen? I can tell you how it doesn't happen. I lived in an apartment for most of my life and I finally moved to a house and I finally said, I'm going to start composting because we have these bins. We have three bins. There's a recycling bin. There's a yard trimmings bin and there's a garbage bin. They just recently where I live, they said, oh, now you can put food in the compost. You can put compost in that bin and the city will take care of it. Great progress. Before any of that, I had a yard for the first time and I said, I'm going to start composting. So I got a giant bin, didn't put any holes in it, put only food scraps in it, sealed this thing up, left it for a couple months. And I opened this thing and it was the most foul smelling, (laughs) disgusting thing you have ever smelled. It was horrible. I opened it up and it radiated the smell that you could smell from a full city block away. I heard my neighbor watering his plants and he started gagging and he didn't know what it was and I thought it was kind of hilarious but it was also really sad and then I learned from a friend oh yeah you need to drill air holes into there you also need to add what they call brown matter you need to add leaves and you need to add other things cardboard for example you can't just put food scraps in there so I learned all about how to do an effective compost and I have implemented those changes since then and I'm on my way But I think it illustrates a point that you might understand, which is to say that composting is a long process and it's kind of a complicated process. And I can only imagine that composting at scale, at any kind of scale on a municipal level, would be difficult. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's super interesting, Ross, is that what you're describing is exactly the poor conditions that happen when you send food waste to landfills. That lack of air is what creates the conditions to produce methane and we know methane is 65 times more potent than co2 as a greenhouse gas so those holes in your compost bin are really important to getting the right conditions happening um, to break down food in a way that's not damaging our environment and actually can be helpful because you can use that compost on your garden i think where it becomes difficult at a municipal level is sometimes the cost of going through that more complex process at scale. And what we're able to do with the insects is instead of it taking a month or 40 days to process the food waste, food that arrives at a body facility is out the door as a product seven days later. Seven days? Yeah, yeah. It's what? I knew it was fast. fast. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's it's really fast and it makes it just really efficient and it means we can occupy a really small amount of space and be quite close to the city centre, um, which reduces the miles the food waste has to travel um, and all sorts of other benefits. And having that seven-day cycle, and in our case, you know how you were saying it smelled so bad and there were no air holes for circulation. In our case, not only do we have the air holes, but the way we feed the food waste to the insects, the insects actually move so much that they're constantly like a wave pulling air back into the substrate to prevent that methane production. And so all of those things working together in a systematic way means we can do something good in a really cost-effective way close to the city. And that's what we've been discovering over these two years is how can we keep scaling that and, and delivering that in 
keeping it simple, but also speeding up the process as we do it. Well, not that it's entirely relevant. Does it smell horrible during those seven days or is it relatively acceptable? I think relatively acceptable is the perfect way to describe what it smells like. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I mean, the labs themselves where the insects consume the food waste, I mean, they're just producing so much heat. They're growing 3,000 times their volume in seven days in in that time. And they're processing every single bit of that food waste. And we are in a factory that shares three walls with other factories that are doing things like producing um, amazing pieces of engineering equipment or turning steel into big bits of railway. And so all of those neighbours are able to work comfortably with us existing in the sort of business park and we have a cafe down the road that does really well so (laughs) it doesn't it doesn't smell so much the thing that smells um and and this is quite funny is that post christmas or post holiday bin tip so it's the rubbish truck that arrives and it's picked up a bunch of meat or something like that Ah, that's been sitting in everyone's bins while all the rubbish truck drivers have been on holiday for a couple of days. It's, it's, it's those tips in the middle of summer that smell, but because we're able to process them within a couple of hours, we um, put on our masks and, and get to it. I love that you just reminded me that that's the middle of summer for you. Of course, I could have known that, but that makes perfect <laughs> sense. <laughs> for us, it's the dead of winter. But, uh, but that also brings up another point, which is if you're a home composting, as I understand it, a big, big, big no-no is you don't put any meat or any types of products like that. So you're suggesting to me that meat, whatever kind of food scraps come in, you're able to turn it into usable fertilizer and these other materials, meat included? Yeah, at this point, we're, we're genuinely able to accept everything that's food. And I could give you a whole list of other things we've received, like radios and jeans and bricks and star pickets and things that insects don't eat. But mostly what our goal is, is to make sure food waste doesn't go to landfill. And so our facility is in between the city centre and all the landfills. And that means that we're just accepting every truck that goes past that's filled with food waste and by being able to accept things like meat and deal with a little bit of packaging contamination we can make a much bigger dent in stopping food waste going to landfill because we don't have to be so picky what a clever clever solution and also to position yourself exactly at that physical place in the pipeline that makes so much sense um, because again, it's about stopping these things at the source and you can be that facility. You can stop them from ever getting to the landfill in the first place. So your partner was studying the common house fly and somehow you found this fly based out of Florida. How did you make that connection? How did you find this not living at all in Florida? How did you find that this fly would be something that you could bring over and would use for this? Well, it it's a really special fly and it's actually already in Australia and in many, many countries. So during the 1940s and 50s, when there was a lot of global shipping, um, this fly ended up in a lot of different places. And 
that's okay because it's a non-pest, non-invasive species. So you won't find this type of fly bothering you when you're on a picnic. It also doesn't eat crops and it also doesn't bother animals like other livestock. It's, as I said before, I, I think it's it's a fly that is terrible at flying. They can, they can barely fly um, as adults, but they're just voracious eaters at the larval stage. Um, when when they're larvae and so we actually worked with a whole group of compost obsessed people in different parts of Australia to get them to look in their own compost bins and we gave them to the tools to be able to classify different types of insects including this black soldier fly and then send them to us in the post via the like national post service in envelopes. So wow. there was actually this period of months where Alex and I were running around to different post offices, receiving different insects from all over the country, including different islands and other places so that we could find the best genetic material um, for converting food waste biologically into an insect protein or, or a biomass that's suitable for food production. Fascinating. And sometimes you got them directly in an envelope. You said this envelope's a little soggy. Maybe these ones didn't yeah. make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, occasionally Just we get put a stamp on boxes. it. And... <laughs> yeah, full boxes of insects sent to us. And so I can distinctly remember pre COVID having um sitting in Uber pools with a box of insects on my on my lap and people asking <laughs> like what was in the box and what's that smell and funny things like that or um phone calls from the post office saying we are so so sorry maggots have eaten your parcel <laughs> <laughs> um have you watched dumb and dumber the movie with jim carrey do you know that oh, movie? i haven't okay there's a part where he, he's trying to build a worm farm it's exactly that and somebody says what are you doing over there and he says i got worms and they say, I beg your pardon? <laughs> That's the name of the worm farm I'm building. I got worm. Classic line. Uh, but that's you right now. <laughs> You're saying that. <laughs> We're so sorry. Maggots have eaten your parcel. So it was a bit of an awkward period, obviously, but also fun and adventurous. And it all started, the, the actual work started in a shipping container, right? Yeah, we built with shipping container materials and sandwich panels and things like that this 60 square meter space at the university that alex and i had both studied at we were able to convince them to give us this patch of gravel to build on and at the time we didn't we were just out of union and we didn't have a car or anything like that so we were together on our bicycles riding with huge long pipes and bits of timber and all sorts of stuff between the hardware store and the university horticulture campus to build out this first lab. And we did all sorts of funny things like we waited till it rained and then we rolled across the ground again and again and again to make it flat so that we could build the foundation. We just didn't have the cash at that point to do anything more than what we could just do with our own hands. and. But we were able to build this up with a bunch of discarded materials. And then once we had that stable environment that we could seal off, we could start doing the real work of working with the insect, making tiny 
gram samples of products and taking them to potential customers to say, if we could make truckloads of this, would you buy it? And was it immediately yes, or was it you're absolutely insane? What was the early feedback? The early feedback was absolutely, but you're never going to. Like, absolutely, yes, we'd buy it if you could do it, but we don't think you can. And I think at the time that was just more incentive for me and Alex as well to keep going and keep playing out and seeing if we could make this vision we had come um, yeah, be, bring it to fruition, become real. So then what was the turning point where you realized, yes, I'm, we're on to something. We've got it. We've got something. I think after we'd had a whole lot of people say, yes, if you can supply this much, we'll, we'll buy it. We're not really sure if you actually will be able to make it, but we will buy it and we'll buy it for a price that stacked up in our modeling. Um, that gave us a huge amount of confidence to be able to go and raise a bit of capital and start building out the solution. But even then, we built out that 60 square meter space and we were processing about two tons a week, two to four tons a week of food waste that would get tipped in the university staff car park on a Friday night. And then Alex and I would shovel it and turn it into insect feed and have to have the car park cleaned by Monday morning when the staff came back. Um, and we were doing all that, but we actually just weren't able to make enough insect protein or fertilizer to service more than a very small handful of customers. And even then they were saying, yeah, it's been great for trials, but we'd need more if we actually wanted to launch an insect protein product, even just for our state or, or for the country, let alone doing more than that. So we took this big leap at that point we didn't really know if it would work or not to move to our own factory. So this 30 times larger, completely bare and empty site. We took our little 60 square meter lab and moved there and then started um, doing more work in the tents that you can buy from the supermarket as little fly environments until we knew enough to know how to build out our own labs. And then once we had that, it just kept growing. We kept building out the automation. And now today we've been operating for a few months now at full capacity, this site that just, um, it, it just runs, it operates and keeps processing the waste. And it, it's in a very automated way. Um, how cool. That's spectacular. But, yeah, there's so much to do now. It's sort of like, oh, how do we how do we build an even bigger, even bigger site? But mm. it's been really interesting just to go on that journey. And I'm not sure if we were like all the way. Oh my gosh, we've got it. This is working yet. There still feels like heaps of heaps of work to go. But we do know that we can process that waste. It turns into things. People use them to make great products. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see what comes next. Is the gist of it that you just take this food waste, put it in a bin, and then just dump tons and tons of larvae in there? Is there another part of this process at the first stage? Yeah, I mean, we part of the the reason why it's working so consistently is that um, we do break it down into these really clear steps. And I think at the moment there's maybe a little bit of a misconception that there'll always be um, people willing to 
pay you to prevent food waste going to landfill. Because as you said before, there's heaps of really good solutions coming that people are coming up with to turn waste into valuable things. And I think it's like the world needs that. We need lots of solutions. And I actually think it's a really, really good thing. And what we're doing at Body is just one of those solutions. So I think how anyone who's working in these kinds of spaces wins is by actually making a really great high value product out the other side. So it's not so much um, the value we're creating is not so much just the environmental value of stopping the food waste going to landfill, but it's actually how good are those products? How good is that insect protein at going into food manufacturing? And how good is that manure at growing plants? So all of the, to, to answer your question, all of the um, complexity is driven by, okay, how do we make sure that product is the same every single time, no matter what food waste gets dumped in our tipping bay. It has to, the food waste is always different, but the product always has to be the same. How do we do that? Mm. Um, or how do we make sure that we use every square meter of our lab to its maximum potential? So how do we make sure that we're breeding these insects in an artificial environment um, and in a consistent way that they're all growing at the same rate really productively and that we always have enough? Um, so that's that's the the big challenge, I think, and and I think we've gone a long way to proving out that we can deliver these valuable products. Yeah. Well, the other part that I think is so fascinating about the products that you deliver, and again, it's these win-win wins that I seek out. Well, first of all, taking garbage as input is automatically a win. Working with natural processes is also automatically a win in my book especially things that scale or that are, like you said, are already happening in nature all around us. Awesome. Great to work with that. But what is particularly cool is that you have two different outputs and they're both exciting. So like you said, you've got what you call the manure, the fertilizer that's coming out. So when the food is broken down, that can be used for that purpose. But then you also sell the insect protein as feed and that can be feed for house pets, for pigs, for aquaculture. So all of the waste or the materials that you're generating can also be sold and reused. So you're not also generating waste in processing this waste, right? Yeah, exactly. It's We want to be a, a zero waste facility and producer ourselves. Um, and at the moment where we're largely able to do that, it's, it is really interesting because if we take that example of, of like uh, aquaculture, so growing fish for people to eat, we know already that about 90% of the emissions that are, are created during that process are not from the process of having the fish in that location. They're actually from producing the feed to grow that fish. Because, I did not know that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of phenomenal. There's these big trawler ships that get sent out um, to places like the coast of Peru when the fishing season opens. And we know that overfishing is a huge problem. So these trawlers are going out, they're fishing to prevent too much overfishing. The fishing season is closed and then they're coming back with not enough fish to feed that fishery to keep it running. And so, yeah, we're getting the overfishing problem, but that's still not enough. So then what's happening is they're going to the Amazon rainforest and we're saying we can substitute 
because there's not enough fish anymore, we can substitute that with soybean meal. So then we're deforesting the Amazon to grow more soybean meal to feed these animals. And for us, we're like, well, what if we could take the food waste? We know there's 30% of what we're producing is getting wasted. So what if we could take that and recover those nutrients and then feed them to the animals instead of growing growing more or overfishing the oceans? And that's where we fit in that in that puzzle. And not just um not just for fisheries, I mean doing that stuff like with soybean meal and, and fisheries, it's getting expensive for them. But also on the consumer side, there's more and more interest from some of those big box supermarket retailers to create offerings for people like carbon neutral fish fillets or carbon neutral vegetables to eat, um, especially when we can achieve it without increasing the price. That's so good. Do you require any other inputs like water or is it literally just the waste itself? Yeah, no additional water. I mean, this might may be a surprise or not a surprise, but there's actually so much water in the food that we get already. Um, and so for us, when we think about what we can turn um, food waste into, one ton of food waste produces about... 375 kilos of fertilizer and 250 kilos of insect biomass and that gap in between there is actually largely caused by water evaporation so we're actually evaporating a lot of that water through the heat of the insect growing and and things like that so it means we don't have to add water which is great It's, it's pretty much purely food waste as an input Right. Whereas if you were doing soybeans, then you need water, you need deforest. And that is the interesting thing about these cyclical nature-based solutions that I find so interesting because I've had many chats with many very fascinating people and places like California, where I live, we export so much water via the produce that we export, things that nobody thinks about. So much of the water that we need, and we're in a mega drought, who knows what's going to happen, goes to things like livestock feed. And it's been widely acknowledged that if we just, for example, if everybody stopped eating meat and all of the water that went to the crops that feed the animals uh, was saved, then we wouldn't have a drought anymore. That's how much water is used for the corn. There's millions and millions of fields. That's just the feed for livestock. So the idea of changing these inputs to change that whole relationship is particularly interesting. And as somebody who has been vegan in the past and who eats a lot of vegetarian, mostly vegetarian, I don't eat meat, I'm not wholly vegan anymore, but I have two cats and I had, I had these two cats since before I made the decision to become vegan over 10 years ago. And what I noticed is when you make the ethical change yourself, you realize I can't starve this cat. I can't make a cat a vegan. That's cruel and it'll die. They are carnivores. They need to eat meat. And a lot of pet owners might feel this. So what are you giving your cat? If you're giving them cat food, then who knows where that came from? It's awful or just waste from uh, God knows what meat manufacturing. I mean, who knows what kind of rendering plant that stuff is coming from? So that puts a whole negative spin on the idea of pet ownership at all. And you think, oh, maybe we just shouldn't own pets, and which is, which is possibly true. But if you change the type of feed and where that feed comes from, you're also kind of changing the ethical dynamic there a little bit. 
And if you say this feed for this livestock or for these pets is now sourced in a way that's not deforesting or doing any of these harmful things, suddenly that makes the other thing more attractive in my book. And that's also an, maybe an unintended side effect or an intended side effect of what you're up to. It's, it's funny because I've been through like really similar personal dilemmas. Like I, we've got a dog and um, our dog's not on a vegetarian diet, but our dog now does eat insects. And it, there's a story that we haven't quite worked out how to tell, but this insect protein that we're producing, it, it's not just carbon neutral. So it's not just stopping things like soy production, um, deforestation, overfishing, or the creation of other like increased requirements for meat that are causing greenhouse gas emissions. Because if we didn't exist and we weren't producing this protein, that food waste would create methane. It actually carries a, a positive carbon neutral status. So it's actually net net positive as it be not just net neutral and so i can i can almost barely wrap my head around the concept that it's like wow so feeding your dog could actually be better than not having a dog because you're stopping the food waste going to landfill in the first place which creates these um, negative outcomes for everyone yeah, it seems like a subtle shift, but it's actually very, very profound. A casual observer, it might be, oh, what's the difference? But there is a pretty sizable difference there with the whole concept of pet ownership in general, because I've seen it written that owning a cat or a dog for one year is the equivalent of a, a small truck driving around or a car at the very least. And you are changing that fundamental equation because humans and pets, again, that's a that's a tough sell. Try to convince humans not to have pets. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But if you can change the balance of how that happens and the animals are healthy, they're happy, they're getting what they need, they're living a long life, yet another win-win-win that we've discovered. Very profound. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I wonder what it will mean when we're actually producing this insect protein for human food as well i mean ultimately that's the most sustainable thing that could possibly happen that we could actually totally prevent that wastage from the human production side of food production at all so all of the food waste gets reprocessed into nutrients that humans eat again and that the process to do that isn't particularly um taxing in terms of its use of inputs um so that's something that's really interesting for me. And at least in Australia and New Zealand, we're going through the food authorities to step through those regulatory hurdles to allow humans to eat the insect that we work with. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting process. And I don't know if the markets are ready for it here already. Like, are we ready for an insect burger? I'm not sure. Um, but I definitely hope there's a future where where that's part of our normal diet yeah yeah we we may not be ready but but i am and i think that there are there's a lot of black and white thinking about these kinds of things when in reality it's spectrum it's not black and white and i've said this before on the show but the hard part is when you have very hardcore people who say as a matter of principle i don't eat any animal derived food be that for example honey or insect larvae because there's no fundamental difference between that and eating a cow or a chicken. Well, for whatever reason, and I can't really defend this with logic or reasoning, but for me, I have no problem 
eating an insect, but I have big problems eating a cow or a pig or a chicken. Now, if you asked me to define what is that exact line between something that I have a problem eating and something that seems fine, I couldn't tell you. There's no there's no scientific backing I could do. But for me, the idea of eating insects somehow seems fundamentally different from the idea of eating a pig or a cow. I don't know, but I do. Uh, and maybe others feel that way, too. And certainly, I think part of it is, is to do with the, the capacity for suffering or perceived capacity for suffering, for one thing. But again, it's all of these other things like the input. This thing feeds on garbage, saving us over here. And it could potentially be food over here. Much more interesting than we have fields and fields and fields of corn that we're force feeding into this thing just so we can have a steak. Very different dynamic. Yeah. And it's interesting because at a basic level, I feel really similarly. And as a team at Body, we often eat the insects. So there's an amazing ops um, person who has made birthday cakes out of the oil produced by the insects, replacing the basha with it, with the insect oil we produce here. And we'll often dehydrate the insects or mill them into a powder and include that in treats that we create for ourselves or meals that we have together as a team. And one of the um, amazing biologists on the team was struggling because they'd been on and off vegetarian vegan and and i'm the same and what they came up with was i think a rationale that i think only a scientist would come up with which is they actually did this amazing data analysis on the number of insects um, that are included in vegetables because obviously when you harvest a crop you're actually ending up with a whole lot of insects inside your cornflake or your whatever you happen to be eating and what was really interesting is they're able to do this data analysis and see that eating a whole insect is probably equivalent to eating a bowl of vegetables in terms of total amount of insects actually already already in there yeah. and I'm not sure if that actually makes me feel more comfortable or less comfortable about the food I eat, but I thought it was a really interesting perspective that that our one of our scientists brought. That is a great point. And it reminds me just recently, there was a video floating around on social media of somebody zooming in with a microscope onto an apple. And there are all kinds of little mites and things crawling around. You take a bite, you don't even notice that. So I hadn't linked those two things together, but it is a very, very good argument and one that is probably... Pretty inconvenient for some folks on this planet, if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah, I think the only problem with the argument is that is that um, you just look at every piece of food as a as a source of insects now. So you just have to, you know, seal yourself off in a in a room, shut the blinds, <laughs> duct tape all the gaps, and just slowly wither away because nothing. You know, we can't exist without causing some amount of damage. That's the human condition, unfortunately. But you have done something really cool. So it's early again, and, and people are backing this up. We're not going to talk too much about that. But of course, millions in funding. So you are getting early support on this. And you're getting some signs that this might be interesting. And I have a feeling, well, you're the largest already such facility in all of Australia. Am I correct in saying that? In yeah, absolutely. a couple years, which is pretty freaking phenomenal you're making big strides um have people in the industrial sector where have you been more popular is it equal in terms of the fertilizer or in terms of the feed or has one been more popular more readily adopted 
I think it's it's really interesting. Our easiest market is getting the food waste. We're perfectly positioned. We're really excited to go and build a 30 times larger facility. And we know we're going to have the food waste supply for those facilities. So many people want to do better with their waste. And we're providing a cost-effective solution for that. We're lucky in, in the conditions that are set up here, at least, that and I think it's the same in California, there's a government-imposed levy to send food waste into landfills. So people are responding to that and they want to send it somewhere that's not in, um, subject to that levy and, and we're able to do that. So it's cheaper to send food waste here and it's better for the planet. So it's, it's never a problem getting the food waste. The insect protein, similarly, Protein is becoming more and more difficult to source. The commodities pricing is rising. So many people want to have sustainable protein sources, whether it's for their farms or for creating new pet food offerings for consumers. And then I would say the most difficult, but also my absolute favorite market is our fertilizer market. It's so often that farmers are being asked to change the way that they're working and respond to new and difficult circumstances. And that's only increasing in the face of climate change. And we absolutely want to be there to support those types of changes and build more structure into the soil with this manure and just be a, a really amazing ally to these farmers and growers. But it takes time to build that trust. So where in other markets, it's easier to just give something a go on the fertilizer market, we've invested so heavily in external party trials on all sorts of different crops, um, commercial trials, working with universities to prove the efficacy, um, looking at the nutrient uptake. So it's been a much um, higher investment in order to enter that market. And we do things like going out to local town halls in farming areas, um, visiting farmers on weekends, getting our gum boots on and getting in the mud um, to test these things out and really understand what, what's going on for them and where this solution might fit. Is there anybody that's just outrageously excited by what you're doing? <laughs> Any farmer or anybody who says, this is awesome, I need to be a part of this? Yeah, oh, absolutely. We've got some amazing, amazing farmers who've just completely adopted this fertilizer onto their full cropping rotation. So that's happened for us in flowers and lettuce and organic beef pasture raising um, and a number of other areas. So we often end up working with them to then spin out case studies and to share the success of not just what how they've used our fertilizer, but what else did they do in conjunction with using that fertilizer that's making their farm more successful, more profitable, more likely to stay in their family now for more generations. Those are the kinds of outcomes that we're hoping um, to be a part of. And, and so it's been really great in those cases to work with those farmers, but they've definitely um, been amazing at, at taking a, a leap of faith with us. Yeah. To me, it seems, and I know when you're in the middle of it, it's obviously a bit different, but to me, it seems like almost a foregone conclusion, something you should never say to any entrepreneur, I know. But it seems like you've turned on the tap coming in. You said you've got that. I just have to imagine that in the next couple of years, and I don't know how long it could take, could take five years, could take 10 years, 
But I think at some point you'll turn on that other tap. You'll land some massive contract on the back end, and then boom, suddenly you've got this in-out at scale somewhere. Somebody big is going to bite on this, and then suddenly you're going to have more orders, more going out than you know what to do with. That, that's just my prediction, but right now I bet it feels like, oh, God, <laughs> who knows when that's going to happen. I mean, I think we're in the throes of go-to-market. It's a really yeah. exciting time. We've got enough confidence that we're going out to build a 30 times larger site that will process 300 tons of food waste per day. It's the size of a Tesla mega factory. Wow. It's just the scariest and most exciting thing I think anyone in this team has ever dared to think about. Um, and I and I really believe that we'll be able to deliver it in a really short period of time. I um and I'm sure there'll be lots of challenges as we as we step into it as well, but I'm excited for those as well. And you're at the helm of whatever this is going to become. How cool is that? It's it's a really I think it's a really unique point in history where um I mean we had we had I think I said before we had no money. Alex's brother paid our rent for a month to give us a, a start to start this business. Um it's an amazing time in history when people can start businesses and try to realize this level of ambition. I think there's probably been never never a better time to do something like this. So yeah, I'm super thankful to have the opportunity. Especially when I when I thought originally that I um, I would be a, a consultant of some kind for for most of my life. My mom's a teacher and my dad's an engineer. I really thought that's what I would be doing. So to do something um, different and then to be so supported in doing it's been yeah incredible. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That is the most exciting thing I think, and. I think that's the reason that I set up this show and that I seek out stories like yours is to prove again over and over that you can benefit personally and financially at the same time. And I think from what I've learned, because I've had another guest on more on the food side of insect protein, this has come up a couple times before, not in quite the way that you're approaching it. But it seems like Australia is really interestingly positioned as well. Like they seem to be supporting you and your efforts, and maybe they're a little bit ahead of the United States, or maybe it's just because I'm talking to people like you that I feel that way. But the, the perception is, to me, that you guys are a little bit ahead of us when it comes to embracing at a, let's say, governmental level this kind of change. Like you mentioned those TV programs. It's kind of something that's in the news. I would argue that that's not really the case here, not in mainstream anyways. Yes, there are pockets of fringe people who are extremely dedicated, doing incredible things, but it's definitely not on the radar of mainstream society, these types of solutions. Yet. Yeah. it's We've just had quite an exciting government change over here that we're waiting with our sort of breath held to see if it increases the work towards um, mitigating climate change. But I also think for Australians, we know that we've got this thinner ozone layer over the top of our country. We know we're going to be the canary in the coal mine for the impacts of climate change. So there's a real sense, I think, that we need to be part of coming up with those solutions. And I mean, this isn't everyone, but it's definitely more mainstream than it is not mainstream. And I can share a kind of more personal example just from my own experience is that as we 
have started to build this team now. We're just a bit over 30 people. We were four people in January last year, 14 in January this year, 30, just a bit over 30 today. And we have just some of the most amazing people joining us who are genuinely giving something up in order to join this company. So when a scientist joins Body, we're not making public publications anymore. So they might have published in a um, journal as prestigious as something like na- uh, Nature as a first author. And when they join us, they know that they, they're not continuing on that path. That opportunity doesn't exist. But what uh, what does exist is an opportunity to be part of something that makes some of that research real and delivers it as a, a positive outcome um, for, for not just us, but hopefully more broadly for our at least our local food system. Um, and then obviously the goal is then once we win here to take it to every city in Australia and then to more cities overseas. But more and more people, I think, want to have a more direct relationship with being part of that positive shift for the future. And, and we're seeing that in, in the level of talent that we're able to um, bring into this team. Yeah, that is so profound. And you've come, this is your first major endeavor, right? There was nothing really yeah. before this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're relatively my, young, my obviously. So, real, real job. So your first real job, and you hit it out of the park. I mean, not many people can say that. Do you appreciate on some level, I know there's a mountain of challenges ahead of you, but do you appreciate on some level that you have struck gold in finding a mission bigger than yourself that's possible or attainable and even encouraging? Yeah, I think, I think there's been so much support. I think you just have to have other people that believe in you almost more than you believe in yourself sometimes when things are really, um, like get really hard as, and in every startup they do, there's always at the start, these existential like threats or moments or things that come up and having people that are, even if they're just on the sidelines, believing in it is so helpful. And I think part of the reason that we've had that is because of the mission and the substance of what we're actually trying to achieve. And I think it probably makes my job just so much easier because not only am I really motivated by the mission that we're on, but it's something that other people are able to get around um, and support quite easily. There's not like a big mental leap to make if you're on board that we need to do something about climate change and that we need to feed everyone in the process, then doing what we're doing just almost becomes uh, something that's totally necessary. Yeah. And that's that's my role. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I realized before I started doing this podcast that I spent too much of my time talking and complaining about the people that I hate, of which there are so many so many ignorant folks in this world, and it's easy to complain about them nonstop. I said, I have to seek out the people who are doing good things, people whom I respect, and I have to encourage them. So that's my role is just to be that one other of the thousand people on the sidelines just say, yeah, you can do it. Woo. Like, keep going. <laughs> like, that's just a random dude in the United States is saying, good job. And, you know, 
because I also recognize that when people do take a leap and, and I've talked to people at various stages of their journey at this point, many different people, some just starting out, some well on the other side of hundreds of millions of dollars. And sometimes that encouragement might be a drop in a bucket, but sometimes it can be a very pivotal thing. And I know for myself, having even one person say good job when you're having a moment of doubt is a very powerful thing. So if nothing else, I hope that you take away from this that uh, I really believe in what you're doing. And I really, really genuinely think it's awesome. I hope that you keep the faith and scale and just crush it the way that I know that you will. Um, but yeah, just cheering you on from over here. That's it. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> That's amazing. No, thank you so much for us. And I mean, for for me, this is our, my first time talking to the US. And one day I hope that we're over there. Um, with facilities over in the US as well. We've we've sent one ton of protein so far. And so, yeah, I'm excited to see what that can turn into. Good. You will be the canary in the coal mine. My hope is that the canary lives. <laughs> You're the canary yeah. that's supposed to survive <laughs> and then come back yeah, to yeah, us. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> if you die down there, then that's not good. So... <laughs> You're supposed to say, we did it. We solved it. And then we can go, whew, good thing that's over. Bring us some water while you're at it too. And a little bit of rain. But anyways, um, I really appreciate it. I know we had some technical difficulties in the beginning. I appreciate you sticking around and going over time. It means the world to me that you sat down with me and just shared your story. I think it's incredible. And I want to leave the last word of this episode to you. So where can people support you or promote you? Whatever action you want the listeners to take, go ahead and say it right now. Yeah, amazing. I mean, we want to build facilities everywhere. So if you're in a position where you have a supply of food waste, you use fertilizer or you use protein in your food manufacturing process, you can check out our website and contact us. We've got a repeatable factory layout that we can roll out to make the difference in local um, food production systems. And then if you want to support in a, in a more direct, individual way, get on our website, follow us, subscribe to the um, newsletter. We can keep you updated. At the moment, we largely sell all of our products just into Australia alone, but I hope that changes in the future so you can stay up to date that way. Sounds great. And let's give them the website one more time. It is uh, B-A-R-D-E-E.com, Bardi.com. Check it out. Thank you so much, uh, Phoebe, for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And with that, the official podcast is over. Mm -hmm.